Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast. So they, you know, there were people who were sophisticated enough to know this is some bullshit. What he, we found out throughout all the testimony is that, you know, first of all, no dog has ever been able to complete anything like this dog can do. And that uh, some of his most vaunted successes were actually abject failures. Well, he got more and more ridiculous about some of the things he was claiming. Uh, for example, I remember uh, during one of his uh, testimonies, he claimed that the dog uh, could track uh, a moving car uh, by you know, smelling the air, and the air particles, uh, you know, were still left behind. So he could, tr the dog could trace to someone getting in a car and then going uh, <clears throat> up I-95. Uh, and he could follow that pathway and tell you what exit uh, the dog got on and, you know, what followed from there. And, you know, you get to the point where uh, it just becomes totally unbelievable. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast, where we are looking at how and why innocent men were convicted and sent to prison during a three-year stretch in the 1980s. You've heard me mention a playbook, a formula used by prosecutors with the Brevard County State Attorney's Office in the 1980s to win cases when there was little evidence of guilt. That playbook involved zeroing in on an easy target, someone with not a whole lot going on for them at the time. There was William Dillon, Juan Ramos, Wilton Dedge, and Gary Bennett. The playbook also involved using jailhouse informants, or snitches, who would testify that the defendants had confessed to them. These informants were paid for their testimony by way of reduced charges or lighter sentences, although none of that information ever came out during the trials. Lastly, a secret weapon in that playbook was a dog handler by the name of John Preston. He died in 2008, but before that, he had been exposed as a fraud and a liar. The Arizona Supreme Court called him a charlatan and overturned convictions on cases he worked. We know that he worked between 60 and 100 cases here in Brevard County. And we know that he was vital in helping the state convict Dillon and Dedge, both exonerated after decades in prison, thanks to DNA. And Ramos found not guilty in retrial, and possibly a fourth in Gary Bennett. Gary was the subject of season one of Murder on the Space Coast. But is it possible that John Preston's deception led to the execution of the wrong man? Here is John Preston himself describing a dog track on video, a video where he is actually seen kicking a non-interested dog in the rear to make a move. It's also a video where he clearly leads his dog into the only cleared part of an overgrown area in rural Merritt Island. I'll explain more in a bit. The dog indicated the suspect sent on the left side 
right side of this tree in the grassy area right there. And he also came back over and rooted down in and spent a, a lot of time smelling and rooting down in these uh, decayed compounds. Okay, that might have sounded a little confusing, but what John Preston was just talking about was using his dog, Harass 2, to try and find the exact location where Kathy Lee Scharf was found murdered eight years earlier. Yep, that's right. He was given an article with the scent of suspected serial killer Gerald Stano and used it to see if his dog would locate Stano's scent near where the victim was found eight years later. I repeat, eight years later. Like I said earlier, the video shows a clearly mowed patch in the middle of a terribly overgrown area. And of course, that's where Preston and his dog wound up. And yep, you guessed it, that was called evidence that Stana was in fact the killer. Here is Sheriff's Lieutenant Bob Williams from that same videotape. It was very, very obvious to me, and I'm sure those of you that are here now uh, feel the same way about it. There's no reason that... Uh, he had no reason to go any further. That's where, that's where the thing ended. That's where the body was found. And you, you, the ones of you that actually worked the scene uh, at eight years ago, that uh, you verify that that's where the body was. So that's concluded fact as far as I'm concerned. Again, I guess these guys weren't used to using video cameras and it sounds kind of jumbled. But what he's saying, to reiterate, is that the dog went right to where they found Kathy Lee Scharf's body eight years ago. So he says, as far as he's concerned, that's that. If it were only that simple to solve eight-year-old cases. But that's exactly what a cop in Daytona Beach was allegedly doing. You see, Sergeant Paul Crow apparently was trying to clear unsolved cases. And according to an affidavit signed by a colleague figured that he could convince Gerald Stano to confess. In fact, fellow Daytona Beach officer James Gadbury said that Crow was simply feeding Stano information about murders and getting him to agree that he was the killer, according to the affidavit. Gadbury said that Stano, who was already serving six life sentences in Florida, offered him no real information at all. But Stano was seen as something of a serial confessor as well. He'd already confessed to killing more than 40 women in three states. Crow apparently realized after talking to Stano about another case that he had a propensity to confess. Crow was removed from office in 1995 by a grand jury appointed by then-Governor Lawton Childs, citing some corruption issues in an unrelated case where he allowed a Daytona prosecutor to go free after driving drunk. I've tried to locate Crow for comment, but have come up empty. But back to this case. According to court documents, Crow wrote letters to authorities in Brevard and asked if there were any unsolved homicides that might have fit the time frame and travel pattern that they had established from Stano's multiple confessions. When he didn't hear back, he decided to try the state attorney's office. And guess who he finally spoke to? Yep. Prosecutor Dean Moxley. It was soon after that that John Preston was called in. Here is former prosecutor Sam Bardwell, who represented Sano during some clemency appeals. So, I get a hold of the video of John Preston, and uh, I, I was familiar with him before, but 
you know, I had, I, you know, I got the video when I was representing Gerald Stano. If you look at the video, you would see an overgrown road, and that was something that a person with a nice car wouldn't drive down because it would take care of your finish, you know, at least knock off, knock your wax off or whatever. And what we see is a hugely expensive Finderhoon FH from Germany. And that dog was on the end of a leash and it showed less interest than my Pomeranian out in the woods. He had to literally kick that dog in its ass to get it to move. So it moves down without any nose work and then all of a sudden to the uh, left, there is this area that's completely cleared by machetes where the body was found. The, the dog is then taken and Claire and uh, John Preston said, you know, you can't steer a 50-foot leash. Well, that's a lie. All right. So he identified eight years later wow. the, the scent. The thing about Gerald Stano is that many people believe he was indeed a serial killer. But did he kill Kathy Lee Scharf? His trial attorney was longtime a public defender, J.R. Russo. Here he is. Gerald Stano was um, pretty well documented to be a serial killer. He was charged with killing an, a young woman by the name of Kathy Lee Scharf. Her body was found uh, on North Merritt Island. When I say North Merritt Island, I'm talking north of the Cape. Um, area way out there, yeah. Way out in the jungle, um, and they arrested Stano for this offense. I believe seven or eight years later. To give you a sense of what I believe to be the ridiculousness of this dog, was that seven or eight years later, they use him to go out on North Merritt Island, and allegedly, the dog tracked Gerald Stano's scent from the side of the road where they claimed his car was parked in through the jungle, through a path through this jungle uh, to where the body was found. And Preston claimed that Gerald Stano's scent was picked up by this dog seven or eight years later um, and that the killer took this particular trail through the jungle and it led from the side of the road to where the body was found. Now just think of the ridiculousness of that claim. Eight years later, yeah. Um, hurricanes, hundreds of inches of rain, wind, rotting vegetation. Animals. Animals, uh, whatever you want to say. Um, that, that just shows you uh, just how far um, this testimony with the dog went. Now according to Bardwell, there is no way that Stano would have gone deep into the woods and risked scratching up his car or getting dirty. Now, my investigation of him, talking to his mother, etc., he, he had no empathy for human beings, but these people have this sense of the material. He would line his pencils in ascending order. His mother said he, she couldn't move a chair without him moving it back. And he had things like he was stabbed his woman to death with, you know, uh, and he got some blood on his jacket, and he was just outraged that he did that. He talked about his car, and I thought, you must have a pretty spiffy car. Well, it was something like a Hornet. 
I mean, it was a car that most people wouldn't, uh, you know, brag about. So when I saw the videotape, I realized he wouldn't take this car and subject it to scratching. And also his love of clothing, he wouldn't possibly have walked with his body. And it became obvious to Bardwell that cops were just using Stano and spoon-feeding him information about unsolved murders in order to clear out cold cases. He was a genuine sociopath, and he has a perfect background for a sociopath, and he was perplexed by it. I mean, he understood that he had aberrant personality, but he just couldn't figure out why he was so different and how he, he could kill you know, without thinking about it. So, now, Claire, the evidence against Stano is, is a good illustration of how the system worked. So Stano uh, is suspect, and once the, co the cops come up with a suspect, they want to clear all their cases. That is one of the worst things that ever happened. An investigator will come, open up a file, will, and sometimes you know, they don't turn on their their uh, recording devices if they do at all until they do a pre-interview. So they'll drop enough hints and sometimes they'll drop enough hints on camera where they're get giving them all the clues. So I've listened to all his confessions and even those that were they were confessed to committing an offense while he was incarcerated. Now maybe even Moxley realized that an eight-year-old dog track would not do well in court especially when there were already so many questions about Preston and whether his dogs could actually do the impossible. So the state used Preston to build its case, but they were not going to present his testimony in court. Why should they when they had an alleged confession? But that was all they had, and the jury didn't quite buy the case, and the murder trial ended in a mistrial. Now it was time for the state to use Moxley's favorite jailhouse informant, that's right, child rapist, murderer, drug dealer, and car thief, Clarence Albert Zaki. Zaki found himself near Stano in the Brevard County Jail. Of course, he would be the star witness for the second trial. Now the state had a second confession to present to the jury. Remember, it was Zaki who was brought in during the second Wilton Dedge trial as well. It didn't matter to Brevard County that by the time the second trial rolled around, Stano was serving six life sentences and one death sentence elsewhere. Zaki would testify that Stano told him he killed Kathy Lee Scharf very slowly, torturing her for about an hour before he finally killed her. This, according to Bardwell, though, was just not the way Stano described killing people. Remember when Zaki testified against Dedge? He said that Wilton said he had cut the old hog even though the rape victim was only 17. Clarence Zaki was, was taken to death row with a mop bucket and a mop. He mopped in front of his cell. He then came back with a confession, magically. And the uh, confession was that what he did was, play, was using a ligature around the neck. He would, he would uh, cut off her flow of blood then he would ease up and she would, uh, you know, come, come conscious again. And so he described this method of murder, which could not be 
contradicted by the forensic evidence. However, I got to intimately know Gerald Stano and I knew everything about him. Whenever his homicidal impulse, he would build up. And that what would happen is he would describe Old Red. When Old Red appeared, then, you know, the death was inevitable. And what he did is once Old Red appeared, the whole notion that this person was alive was so repugnant to him that he would dispatch him with great speed. I mean, he would really, he didn't torture them, he would just dispatch them with great speed. Because he was psychologically impaired, the very processes that, impair, uh, that compelled him to do what he did made it impossible for him to do it in the manner in which it was described. What Sam Bardwell is saying is that the way Zaki described Stano's confession didn't fit at all with how he knew Stano to act. That's one of the reasons why Bardwell believes Stano did not kill Kathy Lee Scharf. But again, Zaki's testimony was damning. He was the only piece the state added during Stano's retrial. And a Brevard County jury found Stano guilty, and he was sentenced to die. He was executed on March 23, 1998, in the electric chair for the murder of Kathy Lee Scharf. His last words released in a prepared statement by his attorney were, I am innocent. Now I am dead, and you do not have the truth. He also accused Crow of forcing him to confess to all those murders. His last attorney, Mark Olive, said that Stano was a sick man who had been deceived by shrewd cops. Here's what he told the St. Pete Times in 2004, after Wilton Dedge was exonerated. Jerry was executed because of what prosecutors had Zaki say. We know now for certain that Zaki was a cold-blooded liar. No jury would convict Jerry knowing that Zaki was a cold-blooded liar. End quote. His words were important. He said Jerry was executed because of what prosecutors had Zaki say. Why would he make that accusation? Well, here's why. New York-based journalist Nash Rosenblatt was doing some research and had earned the trust of Clarence Zaki over the course of several phone conversations. Rosenblatt began to record those phone calls. Those recordings and transcripts were sent to Stano in prison and to his lawyers in 1997. Pretty early on in the conversation, Rosenblatt asks about Zaki's interaction with Stano at the Brevard County Jail. Zaki says, and I quote, Yeah, basically, let's see. He didn't give me no information. Let's just say I got it through from the state attorney, the names and what went on and stuff like that. I was programmed, in other words. When asked who exactly he spoke to, Zaki responded, Chris White and Dean Moxley. The Supreme Court of Florida considered the recordings during Stano's appeals, but ultimately rejected the appeal because Zaki was not sworn and because he didn't sign any legal paperwork acknowledging what was on those recordings. And Stano was eventually executed. Of course, the other issue is, when exactly do you believe someone like Zaki is telling the truth? I've read those transcripts of those recorded conversations, and I was hoping to use the audio from those recordings here on Murder on the Space Coast. But Rosenblatt is producing a documentary and apologized to me, but said he wanted to use it in his film. I can't really blame him. So Gerald Stano, 
I'm not really sure what I believe. But I do know that an FBI report from 2007 was very critical of lab work, or rather the lack of lab work done in several cases that resulted in executions, including Stano. The report says they found no positive associations linking Stano to the crime for which he was convicted and executed. The task force did not learn of this critical information before the execution so that appropriate steps could have been taken had the analysis or testimony been material to the convictions and unreliable. I've also read a report from the psychologist who examined Stano prior to trial, and it says that Stano did not admit to the crime initially, and only did after several hours of questioning. There were also several mentions of two pubic hairs found on Scharf's body that were later proven not to belong to her nor Stano. All evidence in his case was destroyed after Stano was executed. It's hard to believe that anyone believed Preston's malarkey. I just watched a video where you can clearly see and hear Preston say something in German to make the dog stop at a certain item during one of his famous scent detection lineups. You know, the ones that usually have one bloody item and four brand new ones. Well, during a second attempt, with the dog off the leash, it goes to the wrong spot. Here is Preston explaining why his dog stopped at the wrong piece of evidence, saying that the dog basically remembered where he had stopped during the first lineup. Okay, and the off-leash uh, scent lineup, the dog went first to position number four, which had been the original position of the scent article. He identified the scent's presence there. He then turned and came back and worked the lineup, came to the correct item, which is in position number two, and upon coming to that, laid down on it and made his identification again. Uh, the first time when he hit the area in position number four was the result of us not moving the lineup positions and having the presence of the scent in, in its original position of number four and then him identifying the, the item with the scent on it in position number two, um, which the dog would be uh, correct in both identifications because of the presence of the same scent in both places. So how did people believe Preston? As you've already heard, not everyone did. In 1984, remember, Judge Gil Goshorn put him to a test that he failed that took place just before Preston testified in the second Dej trial. Soon after, John Preston was the subject of an expose by Geraldo Rivera on 2020. Rivera came to Titusville and interviewed several people, including Sam Bardwell. Here is Bardwell talking about Goshorn's test. So then what happened is, uh, Judge Goshorn said, uh, what are you guys looking for here, you know? He says, we want a test track. So the judge says, granted. The judge says, I will personally pick out a lawyer that I have complete confidence in. I will create a map and I will have this lawyer start at this position and follow this map. And we will, within 24 hours, the dog will be brought within, you know, 30 feet of the, of the origin of the, of the track. All right. Now, so just to give you an idea of the confidence the prosecutors had, 
I was lead counsel, so I was summoned to the state attorney's office, and there's Buzzy Patterson, and there's the, you know, the, 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 the lap dogs, you know, the ones I had no respect for at all. So, so Buzzy Patterson says to me, well, we gotta have some rules, you know? And at this point in time, I thought, God, we just, you know, they're so invested in this dog that I'm just, just afraid that something really bad was gonna happen. And, it, and that notion was reinforced by Buzzy Patterson saying, now, let's, let's, let's figure this out. Now, let's say that we'll agree that the track is successful if he starts the track and that he ends the track at the end, all right? He won't have to follow, you know, the actual, path. actual path, which he was so proud of testifying about. And so what happened very simply is that dog couldn't get started. So what Bardwell was saying was that Buzzy Patterson was like, how can we make this easier for Preston? The judge offered to give Preston another chance, but he never showed up. After he testified in Dedge, John Preston left Brevard County and he never returned. It wouldn't be long before prosecutor Dean Moxley was elevated to the bench as a circuit judge, and this era of Moxley, Preston, and jailhouse informants came to an end. But the damage had already been done. Just ask Wilton Dedge, William Dillon, Juan Ramos, and others who were sent away based on faked evidence and lying snitches. Next time on Murder on the Space Coast. Let me tell you, his, his whole body of, of work as a prosecutor has been impugned. And let me tell you, no amount of judging is going to compensate for that. In fact, you know, my general view is that he should never been on the bench. We have a really rotten system here and that it takes personal integrity. And once you lose your personal integrity, you know, you got more power. You know, you got power without principles. And what happens is the lifers, the ones that just spend their life there, are those with the least principles, the most vanity, the most confidence in themselves. I, I never believed that and never would believe that uh, of uh, Judge Moxley. As I said, uh, <clears throat> I had a number of cases uh, with uh, Judge Moxley before he went to the bench. I've had any number of trials uh, before him, uh, you know, and he's had a very distinguished career. And I've always found him uh, to be a straight shooter uh, and uh, a man of integrity. But. Uh, I would say that he had a blind spot when it came uh, to Preston. For now, I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to floridaday.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network. Mm -hmm.